and uh, welcome everybody. It seems like a few of you are already joining us. I'm excited for this conversation. We are trying to tackle a difficult topic here of what we're dealing with right now in this cultural moment. So this is actually the first of two live streams this week. Thursday is going to be another live stream talking about um, suicide with John Noyes from Stand to Reason. Mm -hmm. But today we're going to be talking about the topic of viruses and the coronavirus and all that kind of stuff. And really, because this channel is focused on theology and apologetics, really more focusing more so on the, the science of what viruses are is going to be our first section that we're going to talk about is just some basic biology for some of us to have a better understanding. The second part is going to be talking about uh, the theological and apologetic aspects to our discussion of why would God create them and if he had created a good creation, where did viruses come from and all that kind of fun stuff. And then the last part is going to be the practical application to the cultural moment we live in now about how do we protect ourselves, others, and how do we love each other well during this time. And to do that, uh, I have a guest from Reasons to Believe. Dr. Anjanette Roberts. Uh, she has her, uh, her master's in apologetics as well as a master's in chemistry. Uh, she has her PhD in molecular biology. Uh, in 2003, she joined the National Institute of Health where she co-led a SARS research team for three years until 2006. And then from 2006 until 2013, she was an assistant professor <coughs> of graduate education at the University of Virginia's microbiology faculty and directed the biomedical science graduate program in microbiology, immunology, and infectious diseases. And so let's uh, welcome her here. Uh, AJ, thank you so much for coming on uh, the show this week. Thanks so much, Ryan. I'm really glad to be here. And just to keep the facts straight, it was a bachelor's in chemistry, not a master's. Oh, but thanks okay. for that lovely introduction. Yeah. <laughs> You're welcome. Awesome. Well, it looks like you also finished your master's in apologetics the same year I started at Biola. So that's kind of cool as well. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, man, I'm sure that you're getting a lot of requests in the last few weeks uh, with uh, this virus going around uh, with the coronavirus and you being a virologist, a microbiologist. And so I do really appreciate you taking the time uh, to come on and help us kind of understand this a little bit better. You bet. I'm really glad to be here. And, uh, you know, I'm sort of passionate about viruses, if that's okay to say that. Yeah. So I don't mind talking about them. Well, that's actually kind of my first question is, you know, I'm always interested in what gets people passionate about what they're passionate in. And you have, you know, something that maybe we don't hear as much as you're, you're a virologist and you're passionate about viruses. So where did this kind of passion start and why viruses? You know, it, it probably really started in college uh, when I took my first microbiology course and uh, there was a section on viruses and, and we just didn't know hardly anything about viruses then. Um, I mean, we knew some, but, but you know, I had been many times to a doctor with respiratory issues and, and he would often just say, you know, it's, it's a virus, we can't do anything about it. And so it was probably just that innate curiosity of what is this thing that's all around us that creates havoc that we don't know much about yeah. and so mysteries with mysteries you can't see yeah viruses god yeah that, i mean that's often gets a lot of people interested and it's like hey man this is a mystery and i want to figure it out now uh, you are a research scholar at reasons to believe and uh, all of the other research scholars from reasons to believe have been on my show at some point in the past and I always ask them a question from their unique perspective. So this is kind of the one off-topic question, I guess, for our discussion today. But I've talked to Hugh Ross and Jeff Swerink, and they're getting their perspective from astronomy and Fuzz Rana from his um, uh, biochemistry. And so I'm curious, from molecular biology, what would you see as one of the best arguments for God's existence, kind of what you see in, in molecular biology? We're going to get there for sure today in this interview okay. because it, it's probably the way that God has finally tuned the planet for life at the most fundamental level of life, which is bacteria and viruses. And so uh, bacteria are masters of reproduction, they're masters of adaptation, and they're primary producers. They're organisms that can take inorganic compounds and turn them into nucleic, uh, turn them into amino acids and building blocks for other life forms. And bacteria would probably cover Earth and sequester every possible ecological niche if it wasn't for viruses. These entities that can only reproduce inside a living cell. And they're outnumbering bacteria on planet Earth by a factor of 10 or 15, and they're keeping the bacterial population in check so that other organisms can live and thrive on planet Earth. And if not for that balance between viruses, which can't live on their own, and bacteria, which are necessary for all other life forms on Earth to live, but are, are extremely good at reproduction and extremely good at ad adaptation, they have to be kept in check. So even at life's most fundamental level, 
there's a checks and balances of something that can't live on its own, keeping in check something that's necessary for life. Wow. So really, it sounds like, I mean, just kind of the fine tuning and the privileged status of our planet of what this is pointing to. Now, I don't know if I missed it or you said it, but one of my questions I had for you is about how many viruses do we have on planet Earth? I didn't say it. We have about 10,000 times more viruses on planet Earth than there are stars in the universe. All right. And, so, and I mean, so we just one followed by 31 zeros. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we look up in the sky at night, and I guess if you're in Los Angeles, you don't see very many stars with all the city lights. But uh, yeah. if you go somewhere where you can see, you know, you look up, and there's just so many. Okay, so many viruses. And so let me let me give you another another uh, mental picture, sort of. Yeah. Uh, these these numbers are so hard to conceptualize, but if you could take all of the viruses and stack them. Just the, the virus particle, not its genome, but the virus particle. If you could stack all the viruses on planet Earth into a column, that column would stretch all the way to the Andromeda galaxy, two and a half million light years from here, okay. and back, and do it 20 times. Something that we can't even see, microscopic. Can't, can't even see it. Wow. Submicroscopic, okay. right? Unless you use an electron microscope. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So here we are getting into kind of our, the first part of the section I want to talk about is our basic biology. So for some of us who maybe it's been a long time since we were in biology class, or maybe others of us who didn't listen in biology class, um, what would be some of the unique characteristics of oh, a no. virus yeah. and how is it different than uh, bacteria? Well, so I already hinted at that a little bit. Yeah. Bacteria are living cells and uh, bacteria can sequester nutrients uh, from the environment around them. They can grow, they can reproduce, they can excrete waste. Uh, and and that's those are characteristics of living organisms. Viruses can't do any of those things. Viruses actually need a living cell in order for more virus to be pr produced. The virus requires the cell's machinery, the cell's resources, and the cell's energy in order for more virus to be made. Mm -hmm. So viruses aren't alive and bacteria are. That's a very fundamental difference, but a very significant one. Okay, so if we have something that's, I mean, so with bacteria, we have antibiotics, right? So this yes. is a living thing that we can develop antibiotics somehow. I don't even know how that works, right? And then we can kill this thing. Uh, with viruses, we then don't have the same ability to kill it because it's not alive? Well, so great question. So a couple of things. We don't, antibiotics, Antibiotics work great against bacteria because bacteria have independent mechanisms that allow them to reproduce, that aren't dependent upon a cell or an organism that they infect. Uh, but viruses, because they infect cells and use cells' machinery and resources, if you're trying to target or inhibit or kill, and I'm going to put that in quotes, trying to kill the virus, then sometimes that has uh, toxic effects on the cell because you're having to interfere with the cellular machinery in order to stop virus reproduction. Okay. So that makes antivirals a little bit more tricky, uh, but not impossible. Uh, but again, the, this language of you want to kill a virus or how long can a virus live outside of a body, it, it's probably more technically, it is definitely more technically correct to say that viruses are viable outside a host or outside a, a living person or a living cell. But that viability can be uh, disrupted and, and what you basically can inactivate a virus. Okay. So viruses aren't alive outside, you can't really kill them, they're viable and we can inactivate them. Okay, so now you mentioned a few times they're not alive, they're not living. Are there any scientists who would try to argue that they are living? They are, there are, okay. uh, and, and you know, I, I don't have any trouble having conversations with those people and those scientists and, uh, you know, usually they'll concede all of the points that I've made, and yet, and yet they seem to think that you know, no viruses are they're they're up to something, and okay. and they sort of anthropomorphize viruses and other things, and I have a little bit of difficulty with that when you try to make viruses clever, and when they're really just a bunch of protein and nucleic acid, and maybe they have a an envelope or a cell layer around the outside of the virus, but. Um, yeah, viruses definitely lack a lot of characteristics of living things. Okay. So we're also hearing now in our news, right, of us trying to kind of 
combat against this coronavirus is, you know, developing um, uh, a vaccine, right? Or developing some way to try to, to stop it. And you hear that that takes so much time. So, yeah. you know, if, how does a vaccine actually work? Because uh, I know we all get, you know, our vaccines when we're kids, you know, what is that actually doing? And why does it take so much time to develop? Yeah, so so vaccines work by by setting up some type of artificial simulation of an infection inside the individual who receives the vaccine or the immunization. And so it's usually giving you either a piece of the virus or whatever you're being immunized against, uh, which is probably a protein. It could be a portion of a protein. It could be uh, many different proteins. Uh, it could be a whole virus that's been inactivated or killed. Uh, and so you're, you're basically sending the immune system and the immunized individual the signals that a virus would send it. And, and our immune systems have the ability to respond to hundreds of thousands of different threats. Uh, and, and so it responds to the immunization in a very similar way that it would respond to the actual virus. And it sets up memory. And it's that memory that helps protect us when we actually come in contact with the real virus or the real pathogen in nature after our immunization. And so it's a, it, it's a very long process because number one, scientists have to figure out what is it in the virus that is creating an immune response that will lead to this type of memory that will be protective or sterilizing in the long run. And, and some complications can happen. You can get different components that will stimulate the immune system, but it will stimulate the immune system in the wrong way or an ineffective way. And so we have to go through many different steps to develop a vaccine. And some of those steps happen first in the laboratory and usually they involve developing an animal model that mimics human disease. And so you take your constructs that may be a piece of a virus or an inactivated virus uh, and you introduce that to the animals and you ask, is what I'm giving the animal making the animal sick? That's the first question. It has to be safe. You don't want what you're giving the animal or the person later to make the person or the animal sick. So is it safe? And then you have to ask, is it, is it eliciting an immune response? Are there immune markers that we can measure after a certain amount of time that suggests that we're stimulating the immune response. And if the answer to that is yes, then you're, you've got, yes, it's safe. Yes, it's eliciting an immune response. Both of those are really good things. Then you next wanna know, is it offering protection? And if so, at what level is it offering protection? And so you have to challenge the model with the real virus and see if it's protected from disease. And so that's the first thing. And then once, you, once you've shown that, in at least one animal model, usually it requires two, uh, then you can move into a small group of humans, what's called a phase one clinical trial. It's a very small number of people, and it's to test those same things. Is it safe? Is it immunogenic? Is it el eliciting an immune response? And is it effective in protecting? And, and so you do that in a small group, and that takes time. Yeah. And then you do it in a slightly larger group, looking for safety issues all the time as you go bigger and bigger. And so phase two, you're looking for different ways to administer the vaccine, different doses. If one dose is going to be enough, if you need two doses, those are the sorts of questions you're asking in the phase two trial with slightly more people. And then it goes to phase three, which is is it, is it broadly protective? And are there really not any safety issues that we've missed by just looking in a few people? Yeah. And so for to go through all of those things is actually a very important process because it's first and foremost how we make sure, or as best we can, we make sure that a vaccine is going to be safe yeah. for most people. Yeah. And so we don't want to truncate that. And all of that takes time. Yeah, that's good. That's very helpful. Now, you, you we started off, right, and you're talking about the kind of the fine-tuning aspect, our privileged planet, what viruses are able to do. And so we recognize that there are a massive amount of viruses here around us, but the majority of them are not causing destruction, pain, disease, sickness, you know, death and dying. Uh, so what would be the difference between a good virus and a bad virus? Is there like a bad mutation that happens to it? Or is it simply kind of like uh, you, you, what you might say with most natural disasters, a hurricane is not inherently evil, but when it hits a town and destroys a bunch, then it is evil. And so how would, how would we differentiate between good and bad viruses? I'm actually going to pick up on that analogy that you use, because that's Perfect. really very helpful. Um, and so 
So a lot of viruses, the vast majority, and if I could emphasize the word vast, just imagine I repeated that word 200 times. <laughs> <laughs> the vast majority of viruses are not causing disease of any kind. Uh, they're keeping the bacterial population in check. Uh, and so those few exceptions that lead to human disease or to human suffering or even human deaths, uh, many of those viruses we don't know if they're doing something more positive out in nature somewhere. We come in contact with those viruses almost accidentally, but it's not really accidentally. In the case of the first SARS outbreak in 2003 and in this one, it's really gross mismanagement of creation that has led to the emergence of these viruses into the human population. And so, you know, you may have heard about these wet markets, these animal markets where both SARS arose and where there's speculation that SARS-2 arose from. This, these, are, these are markets that bring animals from all different kinds of environments into close proximity with one another that would never come in contact with one another in nature without human intervention. And it brings them together in ways that are, that are very crowded and very unsanitary. They're, you have animals stacked on top of each other that are alive in cages. And, and so as you can imagine, it's sort of a breeding ground for events that would never take place in nature. And so it, it's really a, a, a lack of our understanding of the dangers of nature, but even as we understand it, not having the will uh, to to manage the environment and to manage creation wisely. Okay. So really what we're doing is, is we're taking something that on its own, in its own environment is not going to create any issues and then um, combining it with other, you know, uh, environmental causes or something that causes it to mutate. Is it mutating or is it now just getting into contact with something that it wasn't well, in contact with before? Well, so it is it is evolving or mutating or changing or adapting as as it finds. So, yeah, I'm trying to do this without getting too technical. But yeah. uh, if a virus has certain mutations in in a, a host that it naturally occurs in in nature. So most of the coronaviruses naturally occur in bats. I don't know that we have any idea if they're doing anything positive in bats. Uh, and so that's sort of one of the points I was alluding to a little bit earlier. But, but certain, as viruses, as more and more viruses are replicating, and, and they can replicate in bats without causing disease in the bat, as that happens, different mutations will get introduced into the, to the viruses that are being made. And occasionally, some of those mutations will allow the virus at an opportune time to, if the bat's in contact with another animal, if, if one of those mutations is is released, that virus is released into the environment, and a susceptible animal is nearby, then that particular mutation can set up an effective uh, infection in that new host that it doesn't normally infect. And so you look at the virus in the bat and you say, it typically doesn't have that mutation, but you look at it in the new host and you say, we see this mutation, and then maybe that host serves as an intermediate for coming in contact with humans, and maybe the virus undergoes a similar shift from that intermediate host, a similar mutation that allows it to jump into a human population. And so, yes, the virus is mutating, but the virus isn't mutating in order to be able to make these jumps, yeah. right? It's just, it's just unforeseen and perhaps very unfortunate coincidences that take place in nature for animals to come in contact and a virus to have mutated in such a way that you now have a new host that's that's able to support viral okay. replication. Yeah, and that's similar to a question that came in on Instagram um, where uh, it was asked, Josh asked, uh, how do they mutate? And then is this their way of adapting in order to survive? Does yeah, it seem so like- Viruses aren't, aren't, you know, they're not, they're not uh, willfully trying to survive. Although, yeah. although, there are some uh, there are some scientists that would disagree with that, okay. and and they may be some of the same scientists that think viruses are alive, uh, because there's there's this idea that agency isn't just present at the human level. Hmm. Some scientists think that agency, the ability to adapt and choose and to want to survive, happens at molecular levels or cellular levels, right? So you've heard of selfish genes, yeah, right? Okay, so this, this concept exists in, in a subset of the scientific community, that viruses are intentionally 
doing something to promote their own survival. But viruses are just genomes, stretches of DNA or RNA surrounded by protein, and they may or may not have an envelope around them. And so that's it. That's, those are the basic components of every virus. You have protein, you have nucleic acid, and you may have an envelope. And you don't really have any systems that are self-functioning until that entity gets inside a cell and unpacks. And then the cellular machinery picks up the viral genetic information and starts making more virus, right? So that's how mutations happen. The cellular machinery or the viral proteins that are reproducing the viral genetic information are making mistakes. Uh, and those mistakes get incorporated into new viruses. And as long as those mistakes don't inhibit the, the reproduction process of the virus in the future, then those mutations will will now enter into the diverse pool of viral sequences for that given virus, right? Yeah. So that's how mutations happen. And it's not, it's not that the virus is trying to survive, but it kind of looks like that because only successful mutations get picked up and reproduced. And so it looks like only the survivors are surviving, but that's because we don't see all the ones that are getting weeded out, right? Yeah. So that's good. And, you know, this is maybe a little bit off topic and uh, maybe I shouldn't ask it, but I'll jump in really quick. Uh, maybe we'll keep it short because this is a whole nother issue. But, you know, talking about this idea of, of viruses uh, adapting and, and mutating, it sure sounds like ad adaptation, natural selection, kind of the, the driving mechanisms yeah. of, of evolution. Uh, so would this be an argument for a macroevolutionary perspective or can we as Christians still accept the adaptation and mutations of viruses, but there's still a jump that needs to be made for macroevolution? Yeah, it's definitely the latter part of what you said. And and my colleagues, Fuzz Rana and Sue Dykes and I, and uh, an analytical philosopher named Mark Perez contributed a chapter. We've just written a book uh, called Thinking About Evolution, 25 Questions Christians Want Answered. And, uh, and so I have a whole chapter in there about microbial evolution. And, and it answers these exact same questions that you just asked. It's, right. it's like, can we say that microbial evolution is a reality? And, and, and absolutely, yes, we can say that. And we should say that because the evidence for that is, is profound. Uh, but does that give us confidence then that these larger changes that need to take place in, in developing entire new systems or pathways or the novelty of needing new genes that don't occur in any other context, does it give us any confidence that, that all of that is also true? And the answer is no. It gives us some descriptives of some mechanisms, but it leaves a lot of unanswered questions. Yeah. And so we can still be highly skeptical that, that we don't have any strong evidence yeah. that macroevolutionary type evolution is, is real. Perfect. That's good. Wonderful. Um, all right. So we are going to run out of time if I don't kind of shift gears. So let's kind of we're going to shift a little bit over into the theology and the apologetic aspect. And we'll start with a question uh, that actually came in on uh, Facebook, actually from my grandma. So hi, grandma, if you're watching. Hey, um, grandma. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so if these viruses are not alive, uh, is it something then did God create them? I think so. I think I think God did, in fact, create viruses. And I, I think that, you know, I've, I've hinted at that already because they're so necessary uh, to open up ecological space for other organisms like people to survive. Without viruses, Earth would be one giant ball of bacteria floating through space. Uh, and so viruses are fundamentally essential uh, for life on planet Earth, complex life, advanced life like ours. Yeah. And so would you put the creation of viruses as the pre-fall or is it, uh, are they the result of the fall? Absolutely, I would put them pre-fall. Uh, because again, I just I just think the small fraction of viruses that are associated with any type of disease, we just don't know enough to know whether those viruses have a positive function in the environment that we haven't identified yet. And the fact that we are mismanaging creation and we come in, in contact with things that can cause us harm doesn't mean that, um, that that wasn't part of an intended creation. You know, I think that I think adversity is is probably very central to to our growth uh, in areas of of compassion and areas of of courage and and bearing hope and things that we fundamentally value as as people. Yeah. Uh, they only arise in the face of adversity. Yeah. And scripture even tells us that God 
God uses the trials in our lives to form Christ in us. And if and if he's about forming a people for himself for eternity, if he's about having free moral agents to freely choose to trust him and even in the midst of adversity, uh, then then I see all of this as part of God's God's plan for creation. And that, that's such a good response. I think that's that's partially kind of what I go into. And I just got this question on my YouTube channel uh, this morning or yesterday, so it's on my mind: is why didn't if God, you know, why didn't God just create us all in, in heaven to start with? And it's you know, I think one answer. I think there's many possible reasons, and we don't maybe fully understand, but I think one possible answer is because of all the things that we learn. Uh, you know, and I often go through this. How would we understand the sacrifice that Jesus made in the cross if we've never had to sacrifice? And how could we understand God's forgiveness of our sins if we've never had to forgive? Because no one could ever do anything wrong to us. And so there are, you know, you could keep going, but there are so many valuable lessons that we can learn and the hope that we have and the peace that we understand of who God is and what it will truly be like in heaven to be healthy because we have yeah. experienced sickness. And I think, you know, that uh, that's more of an intellectual answer that I think can help satisfy Many people. That's difficult, though, if you're dealing with someone who is struggling with sickness, yeah, with yeah. disease. It's, it's really hard if you're in the midst of, of the suffering, right? Yeah. It, it had to have been extremely hard for Job yeah. <laughs> in, the midst, in the midst of his suffering. And yet I think that there is something, there's something just deeply profound about learning the trustworthiness of God and learning the great depth of God's love and his compassion as as he laments with us in the face of our suffering, but but those adversities, that, that suffering, when we encounter it ourselves, it's an invitation as to how are we gonna wrestle with it, turn towards God and his presence? Are we gonna receive the ministry of brothers and sisters who are trying to come alongside us and, and help us? And if so, you know, we're we're experiencing a hope and an invitation to hope like Job did, even though he had no explanations and no understanding of what was going on. Yeah. And, and, and if we look at Job, we see that that trust in the midst of uncertainty is of profound significance in, in the grand scheme of things, right? There were cosmic ramifications to Job choosing to trust God yeah. in the midst of his adversity. And so, so that's encouraging for me to think that that might be true of my life as well, the other thing is when we see somebody else suffering, that's that's a clear invitation to to step alongside that individual in the name of Christ for the sake of Christ to bear hope, to sit with them, to comfort them in any way that we can, and to remind them that that this invitation to trust God in the midst of that, that God's presence is there, that it's not there's nothing they're encountering that's surprising God, right? Psalm one thirty nine. God's already there and intimately acquainted with us. Um, so, so I just think that the I just think that we think that somehow creation was meant to be adversity free, and I just think that that's muddled muddled thinking. Yeah, no, and I think that's so good. I mean, that's one thing in kind of the the last part that I, I want to talk about, and we can you know it's brought up now, and that's just totally fine. Is this idea that you know we our character grows so much when we often not only suffer ourselves. But I think when we see other people suffering and I just think that's so cool of one thing that um, the church and Christians have been doing is I, I, there's a lot of people that are hoarding and a lot of people that are being selfish. And then there, I, there you also see at this time a lot of people giving of time and energy and donations to hospitals and even uh, caregivers in hospitals risking their lives and, and really putting their life on the line in uh, working with people who are infected and really showing the love of God and reaching out. And so uh, are there other ways maybe that as Christians that we can step out and truly love people well and, and see our character be more like Christ when others around us are suffering? You know, I, I, think, I think there are really practical ways that we can do that now. All of the things that you were saying is absolutely right. We as Christians, we, we know that our lives are secure in Christ, and so we have this boldness. We have this fearlessness, knowing that God is with us and that God is intimately acquainted with us and that our days are numbered by him before we live any of them. But we, we have that boldness to go into adversity, but we also, as that compassion of Christ for, for our fellow human being drives us into those courageous acts in the midst of real risk, that same love, that same compassion 
should lead us with that same conviction to protect those that we can protect. And so we need to be doing everything we can do to help mitigate the public health situation that we're surrounded by. And yet, if we're practicing personal hygiene, hand hygiene, environmental hand environmental hygiene, and we're, we're taking resources to people who can't get out themselves and we're doing that responsibly, then I think all of that is loving boldly. Yeah. And I think all of that is thinking clearly. Yeah. I think the other thing we can do is to not spread misinformation. I just think that that's really not helpful. Um, it, it contributes to people's uncertainty. It contributes to fear. Uh, and I just don't think that that's part of what it means to walk with Christ in the middle of of really extreme times like we face today. Yeah, that's good. And, and we're going to get to some of that misinformation uh, in kind of part three of our discussion. And so it's hard to maybe go back because it's just so much fun talking about the hope that we have in Jesus Christ and who he yeah. is and how we can love one another. But you kind of mentioned, uh, you know, the character building that we get from adversity, uh, from uh, these things and suggesting that the viruses, um, or you saying that viruses are pre-fall, uh, but then that opens up a whole can of worms is how can we say that God's creation is a good creation when yeah. you're maybe suggesting and correct me if I'm wrong, that there was maybe disease, death, pre-fall. Is that even possible? That maybe yeah. worries a lot of people. Yeah, it does worry a lot of people, doesn't it? Um, I think I think the most clear thing that I can say is is to consider this um, to call creation good does not at all suppose that creation was adversity free. Mm. If, if adversity is something that God wanted us to face so that we could grow and mature and so that we could learn to be compassionate and courageous, things that wouldn't necessarily happen in the absence of adversity, then, then there could be this element of creation that, that intended that, excuse me, that intended that we would encounter real struggles and real risks. And and I think that many people think that risk-free is equivalent to good, or that some form of their imagined perfection is what God created in the beginning. And I don't think that that's what the scripture tells us. I think that the scripture says that it's good and that it's very good. And yet there's hints that that these things were already a part of creation. Things like death uh, and perhaps, perhaps things like disease. Although if disease is primarily a result of our mismanagement of creation, then perhaps it's, perhaps it's more like a secondary effect of the sin of the moral beings uh, that chose to go their own way and not God's way. Okay. So what would you say, uh, maybe you kind of maybe said this a few times, but just to clarify, um, could we say what the original purpose of viruses was? Was it to control bacteria? Would, could we say that? Or we go, we well, don't know exactly why God created this. Well, I think that that's one of the original purposes of viruses is, is because it's a fine tuning of, of ecology uh, across, across a global scale. But, Viruses are actually extremely amazing entities. We know a lot. I was going to say almost everything, but we know a a whole lot about what we know about cell biology and about molecular biology and about DNA because of experiments that were done with viruses. So viruses are these tools that allow us to discover fundamental properties of living organisms that we can then take that information and we can make applications that help us care for each other and help us care for creation uh, much better. Mm -hmm. Viruses are also like little tiny nano machines and we can now manipulate many different viruses and we can we can manipulate them in such ways that we can do some amazing things including treating diseases. Uh, perhaps eradicating certain types of cancer, uh, perhaps correcting genetic defects that seem to be part of life in and of itself. And so, so there's this idea of viruses are vitally important at, at an ecological fundamental level for all of life on planet Earth, but they're also amazing tools that help us to discover the intricacies of life and help us to manage creation and human health even better. 
And so to me, those are gifts. Those are gifts yeah. from God. And I know you've kind of talked about this uh, before uh, in uh, there's other videos, but um, about viruses being part of God's redemptive plan, right? And then is that us being able to be able to use them well uh, to, to love and to uh, heal and, and these kind of things that you mentioned here? Yeah. And so, so when I refer to them as, as part of uh, sort of viruses and redemption, I don't mean, I don't mean our spiritual redemption. Uh, I mean, I mean sort of physically redeeming uh, the negative effects that we see uh, in, in creation, right? So, so we can go in and we can try and mitigate or, or cure cancer uh, by stimulating a, a proper immune response with engineered viruses. Uh, we can try and alleviate different types of blindness, but by administering genetic corrective uh, molecule, <clears throat> molecules into particular cells, and we can target those particular cells by using viruses as, as sort of delivery mechanisms for the mechanisms that we want to get into particular cells. Yeah. So, so yeah, that's what I mean by using viruses in a way to redeem, okay. uh, redeem things that look like they're, that they're not functioning the way that we would want them to. Yeah. And so with viruses, um, being able to keep bacteria in check, um, then being able to then use viruses in like an antibiotic or, you know, in, or instead of an antibiotic, antibiotic or something like that? Great, great question, Ryan. Actually, it's something, so those viruses that infect bacteria uh, are called bacteriophage or just phage for short, okay? And so before the advent of antibiotics in the 1930s and 40s, uh, we actually used globally phage therapy to treat bacterial infections. Okay. And so places in the world haven't abandoned phage therapy. They've, they've maintained libraries of different ty types of phage that will kill different types of bacteria. And so they treat bacterial infections with phage. Uh, but we, we abandoned phage therapy uh, at the advent of antibiotics because we thought antibiotics were much more easy to produce uh, and much more easy to distribute, much more stable and lots of problems not associated with phage, uh, not associated with antibiotics. So we basically abandoned uh, phage therapy in the U.S. in the in the early 1940s. Okay. Uh, but, but we are, there are companies and there are scientists that think that we need to head back into phage therapy because of the increasing amount of um, antibiotic-resistant bacteria. Wow, okay. Perfect. Yeah. Um, now, here's a question that came in, and it's uh, having to deal with, uh, I don't know if you have a response to this, so if not, that's okay, but I'll throw it up here. Um, and that is, you know, uh, how would we relate the, the global pandemics compared to Revelation 6 about, you know, disease infecting the earth? And then do you know of any miraculous healings that people have experienced? In general or in regard to the virus? In regard to COVID-19. Yeah, so in regard to COVID-19, I'll answer the last question first. No, I don't know anybody that's experienced a miraculous recovery, although they're probably out there. I just haven't heard any stories. Um, okay. And so how do we think about this in light of Revelation 6? Um, well, I think Revelation 6 is hinting at a real plague. The question is, how does this compare to what it might be hinting at? Um I, I honestly don't think this is severe enough to be considered, uh, you know, biblical proportion plague. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, you said you said it was a little outside of the realm of maybe what I needed to answer, but... <laughs> well, I just know, know that's a, it's a huge topic. I'll, I'll, kind of, I'll kind of wade in with, with a whole lot of trepidation and, and uh, just imagine a string of disclaimers as well. <laughs> uh, so... So I'm going to be highly speculative right now, and it's just speculation even for me, okay? But but there's a part of me, people, I've encountered a few people who say, you know, well, God can't be good or or we wouldn't be experiencing this COVID-19 thing. And and I think, you know, the, the way that we talk about our observations really frames the way that we think about these things. And so... When we encounter a comment like that, we, we immediately think that somehow we have to defend the truth of what that person was thinking when they made that comment, when, when we don't necessarily. I, and so this is, this is going to be highly speculative at this point, and it's, it's this, that who are we to say 
that the lessons that we're learning as we're going through this current pandemic are not vitally important to protect us from something that might be in our future, hmm. right? And so I don't want to create, you know, pandemonium and panic and hysteria, but there are a lot of scientists, a lot of virologists uh, who are very concerned and have been very concerned for decades about the potential for an extremely bad influenza pandemic. And if you think back to the 1918, over 500 million people were infected globally, and there were over 50 million deaths globally. Uh, and that's a conservative estimate on mm. the number of deaths. If you think back to the plague in, in Europe, uh, you know, it killed, killed more than 60% of the European population uh, in the 14th century. And so, so there are real plagues. And who's to say that, I mean, we're seeing holes in different nations' public health systems and how they're, and how they're trying to mitigate this current pandemic. Who's to say that this isn't a form of God's mercy so that we can prepare, hmm. so that the next time we encounter something, we're doing it much better yeah. with yeah. the proper resources and the proper... And so don't let somebody else's presuppositions <laughs> frame, frame the dialogue that you're going to engage in. You know, our God is merciful. Our God is loving. Yeah. Our God is with us. And so, you know, again, these adversities, they're real, but perhaps they're inescapable. Perhaps they're part of life as we know it and have always known it as human beings. And we as Christians have very good responses as to what these adversities are, are doing and what our purpose is and who our God is. And so, um, yeah, yeah, learn, learn your beliefs and learn your, learn your story and learn to tell it well. Absolutely. Yeah, I brought up the kind of qualifier at the beginning of maybe this is a lot because, you know, that really gets into end times theology and where people have a lot of different perspectives on how things are going to end. But I love what you said um, about preparing us, because even in an article I've written, and it's on my website, um, 10 reasons why God may allow suffering. Uh, one of the reasons is it's possible God allows suffering in order to prepare us for a greater trial in the future. And so that definitely is a possibility. Can we say that 100% sure in every single case? No, but there's many different things we can kind of think about and go, why might God allow this? And I think yes. that definitely is one of the reasons of God preparing us for future trials. And so that's good. Now, um, so kind of now switching over and, and talking about, you know, the practical application of, of what's going on here and what we can do. Uh, you mentioned at the beginning, I said we get back to it, uh, this idea that one thing that we as Christians can do is to stop spreading misinformation. So what are some of the most common kind of bad advices or misinformation that you're hearing that is being spread? Yeah, I, I think I think some of the worst that I've heard is probably, um, you know, I can I can gargle with warm salt water or hot salt water and and kill the virus. Uh, and that's that's definitely not true. Um, I think you know some of the misinformation along the lines of, well, I'm young and young people aren't at risk. Uh, also, definitely not true. Yep. Um, I I feel fine. I'm healthy. Uh, there's no reason I should be worried about being around other people. Also not true because maybe up to 80% of cases are without symptoms, asymptomatic. And, and so that means 80% of people, when all is said and done, may have been infected and spreading it to other people just totally unaware that they had the virus. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, and then there's other misinformation that's sort of um, these conspiracy theories about where the virus may have come from. And I think those are the most unhelpful <laughs> and the most irresponsible. Um, and so, you know, they're just, there's just no evidence whatsoever that this was a human construct. There is, there's no evidence convincing um, that it's even, it's even possibly a, a lab accident gone astray. Uh, and so to even speculate about those things, I think it's just really it's just really not beneficial and, yeah. and there's no evidence to support it. Yeah. So what would be some of the, then the good advice, the good things that are being spread and, and where do you go to get your advice on how to live well in this time? Yeah. Oh, that's the last one's a great question. I, I think I'll, I think I'll answer that one first again. So where do, where do I go in order to live well? Well, yeah, I have, I have several, um, 
Christian sites that help me to think more clearly and more compassionately uh, about about trials and things like this. And so I, I go to those sites for sort of spiritual encouragement. Uh, but for the for the science, for the health information, uh, really what you should be doing is probably going to be best articulated by the CDC. So cdc.gov. That's the uh, Center for Disease Control in the U.S., their website. You can also go to who.int. That's the World Health Organization. Uh, They give situation reports on a daily basis. But uh, I find one of my favorite sites to go to for actual physical information is uh, from John Hopkins Center for Health Security. Uh, They're tracking uh, the epidemic, the pandemic on a global scale. But they're also issuing uh, daily situation reports that compile observations from around the world, and they're, they're focusing on the U.S. now that the situation's getting worse in the U.S. And so you can sign up for that email. They can email you. Uh, there are different people on social media that I find really extremely reliable. And, and it's not – I'm not – again, everybody is a political entity, and I really have tried not to make political comments, and I will continue to try to avoid those. And so – even though I recommend recommend individuals, don't assume that because I'm recommending them for their advice and their science that I'm also recommending their politics. I'm not. That's a disclaimer. Uh, but I go to people like uh, Trevor Bedford, who's at Fred Hutchison. He's doing a lot of tracking of, of the viral mutations that are taking place in different parts of the world and different isolates. I go to Helen Branswell, who's also on Twitter. She works for a, a, a online news organization called Stat News, and she does excellent reporting on infectious diseases and has for several years. Uh, I, in this current situation, I'm also going to Scott Gottlieb, who was the director for the FDA in the U.S., uh, and so, so those are really good sort of social media sources. Those are really good uh, public health sources. You should also go because we're in different states, uh, you should also go to your local public health department and see what their recommendations are and follow those. But again, you know, sort of who's encouraging me in these times spiritually? Uh, I just, people that I've, I've learned to rely on, there's, there's a guy in Virginia named Bill Haley uh, that runs a place uh, called uh, Core Haven. Um, I, I usually listen to a lot of uh, some of Justin Brierley's interviews, I find those really helpful and encouraging. Uh, I typically find N.T. Wright's comments uh, also incredibly encouraging, although I just saw an article in Time, I think, where where I'm, I'm sort of disagreeing with N.T. Wright, and it always breaks my heart <laughs> to sort of disagree with N.T. Wright. Uh, but but I've, I've tweeted about that disagreement just briefly. Um, but I, I find him, you know, anybody that's really pointing you back to the truths of God's character, that's pointing yeah. you back to the truths of of the Scripture, that's pointing you back to uh, just just thinking clearly, loving boldly, serving wisely, praying always. Uh, you know, those the people that sort of track in those categories are the ones that I go to for encouragement. Wow, thank you so much. Yeah, and I'll do my best to try to go back over this when we're done, and kind of get those links and be able to put them in the description below for those uh, others to be able to follow and, and check out as well. Um, now, we've already kind of talked about this a few times and, and we've addressed, you know, I think answered it in a couple different ways, but I don't know if there's a maybe more specific way because the question did come in uh, in the live chat from Israel. Um, and he says, you know, considering what we're able to learn from adversity, what lessons do you think are we supposed to be learning from this current pandemic at a communal and a personal level? Yeah, that's actually a really great question, I think. Um, you know, I, I think that one thing we're learning, and and I see this even if people aren't cognitively aware that they're learning it, um, we're learning that we're all vulnerable, and we're learning that we all really need one another, uh, and we're learning that on a couple of different levels, aren't we? We're learning that because we're having to sort of socially or physically distance ourselves, we're learning how much we really thrive by physical community. And, And so I think that's really I think that's really drawing up in us this this deeper sense of of people are meant to be in relationship, yeah. and and that that relationship is something central to who we are, 
And and that is very much at the heart of the Christian message, right? And so so that that longing that's within us that's being challenged by having to physically distance is just something that is really bringing to my mind um, the deeper truths of Christianity in a very tangible way that we can point to. Um, one of the other things that I think it's it's doing is it's it's helping us to see that we're vulnerable and and we're starting to realize, hopefully most of us, that we really need to care for one another. We really need to be sensitive to those people who are more vulnerable, but to recognize that we don't always know each other's vulnerabilities. And so to treat each other as as something fragile that actually requires me to be selfless in some of the choices that I make so that I can love the person next to me extremely well. Again, something very central to the Christian message. And so uh, I just think there are so many things along those lines. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good. And I mean, it's something that I've been saying, and I think it even came in. Actually, my dad commented in uh, responding to this. And it's like, you know, one thing it reminds us is that we're not in control of our life. And I we're think not. there's 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 nothing more. I mean, we, we want to put so much trust and faith in the government and in ourselves. And you hear people all the time say, you know, I'm in control of my life. I do what I want to do and all this kind of stuff. And I just, man, it's just this one thing that's reminded me is how easy it is really to crumple worldwide governments and worldwide economics. And it's not as strong uh, as we are. Something, you know, we can't even see just really puts us on our knees very quickly and says, look, you're not in control. Uh, And then also, you know, an interview that'll be coming up here in a few weeks uh, with Clay Jones, but he often says, you know, when, when sickness happens, when these sort of things happen, it teaches him not to love this life too much. Yeah, you know, it's absolutely. often when we when we don't get sick and when we're healthy and when we're good and yeah. we have money and everything, we start to think of ourselves as God and that we should be worshipped because we're the ones in control rather than realizing we are weak, we are broken, we desperately need help. And I think that it's in these times that we're reminded sometimes the most that we are not in control. We need help and that God really is sovereign and in control. And so there's just so many things that we can learn there. Absolutely. Yeah. Those are all great points. I'm wondering if you have kind of any predictions because, you know, we talk about in in two different ways. And the first is this. uh, (laughs) I think it's a safe prediction. That's what I'm going to ask is, you know, with your studying infectious diseases and, you know, bacteria and viruses and that kind of stuff. You know, I think there's just a lot of ways in which we 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 lived that we weren't aware of just how much stuff we touched that's around. I mean, I went to Chipotle the other day and I tried to grab a fork and they got mad at me. They're like, only we touch the forks now. And it's like, okay, Um, And so I'm just. Yeah. You know, and I, you know, my mom has mentioned maybe salad bars, you know, just thinking about how many people have touched those utensils and grabbed salad. You know, are, do you think there's going to be some changes in just how we live, knowing what you know about viruses and diseases, that maybe we were doing things that we realized were not maybe as healthy or as safe as we thought they were? Or are those practices not as bad that I touch a fork in a container that everyone else has touched? <laughs> no, it's probably pretty bad. <laughs> um, you know, I... Do I do I hope that what we're learning here helps us in our human behavior modification in general? Uh, yeah, I hope so. And will that be beneficial for us? Yeah, it will be. Um, do I think that we will like modify our behavior in a lasting way? Well, behavior modification is one of the hardest things to accomplish. And so uh, I don't know how hopeful I am that we actually will. But I think many of us will be more mindful, and I think that's going to have extreme positive effects. Uh, depends on how long the lesson lasts, yeah. right? How long do we have to keep going through this process, this go-round with the pandemic? Um, if the lesson lasts long enough, in the future, will we actually see better hygiene practiced publicly so that we don't have as many annual deaths associated with influenza? which is transmitted in very similar ways. Um, and so, you know, we, we, I hope we learn. I hope we learn. I hope it sticks. Uh, and I definitely think it will have a positive impact if it does. Yeah. I even, mean, you know, I saw one person put, you know, maybe this is the time we give up our American greeting of shaking hands and, you know, switch to a fist bump or something of that sort uh, and just trying to protect ourselves. But I think you know, I'm going to tell you, I'm a, I'm a hugger at church. And I think that actually hugging is much more sanitary than shaking hands. Uh, and especially if you're aware of your own breathing pattern when you're hugging somebody. Right. Yeah. And so. I wouldn't hug somebody right now because I don't know if you've noticed it, but this entire interview or this entire conversation, <laughs> I've been having allergy issues with my nose and I keep rubbing my nose. And yeah. so 
you know, the first thing I get, I'm going to do after we sign off is go wash my hands. Yeah. Uh, but, <laughs> but my allergies are driving me crazy. So also there's a little helpful tip. Whenever we get back to having church in person during meet and greet time, don't shake hands, start hugging people. It's safer. It's cleaner. Yes. And don't breathe in their face as you're going in for the hug. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Wonderful. Now, kind of in a uh, now personal interaction, a, a question came in uh, from Facebook from Claudia. And she asked the question, um, uh, let's see, where does it kind of start? How do Christians, uh, when things kind of get back to normal, how do Christians resume relationships with those we love outside of our home without kind of a paranoia of the virus still lingering, not treating them as lepers? Kind of where's the balance of, you know, when we finally get back into society, like still kind of holding people at a distance and and getting back to, rela- you know, loving people well? Yeah. So, uh, you know, again, I just kind of, and maybe this is her question, maybe it's not, but, you know, follow follow sort of the public health guidelines. Uh, you know, Tony Fauci's a really bright guy, uh, and the people around him are really bright. So, you know, if, if he's telling you we still need to be practicing these five steps or these 10 or 15 guidelines, uh, really take that to heart. So, you know, will there come a time again when it's not necessary because of this pandemic to keep a six foot distance between you and the person who you don't know where they've been and you don't have social trust built up with that individual. Uh, So, so when, when it's free to sort of lessen that six foot distance, then, then how can you be confident that it's okay? Well, always entrust your future and the fact that your days are numbered by, by God's ordination, right? By his, the way he ordained your life. Psalm 139 says that my days were numbered before I lived one of them, right? So ultimately trust that. Secondarily, trust that people who know are going to be giving us guidelines. And as long as we follow those guidelines, we should be good to go, uh, as good to go as possible. Uh, And then the third thing is, is that you know, when this has sort of burned, run its course, burned out, if you want to call it, whatever you want to call it, then just assume that everybody you're interacting with either had it and was asymptomatic and now they're immune to it, or that it's no greater risk than you're going to catch anything else from them, like like the cold or the adenovirus or, or whatever, you know, or, sorry, adenovirus. Uh, it's just another virus that causes the cold. Okay. So, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. And I think, you know, this seems to be similar to a lot of issues where when you have a close call with something, it may freak you out to kind of do that thing again. But there kind of needs to be that time where we that place where we do go back to normal, uh, where we recognize, look, yes, I could get sick. Um, I could die in a car crash. I could you know, there's a lot of things I could do, but we can't keep this for one, uh, uh, keep it from allowing us to live and live in the way that God has created us and especially go out and evangelize and tell people about Jesus. And if I'm going to now be fearful of being around people, uh, of what might happen, um, it's really going to, I think, limit us. We sometimes need to trust in God's sovereignty, as you said, and that, you know, our days are numbered and, you know, we don't know when that day is going to come. And so we need to do what what God has called us to do. Um, I think it gives us great confidence, doesn't it? I mean, the fact that God's, the God's already prepared all of these good works for us to walk in and he's, numbered our days before we ever lived one of them. I mean, what what freedom knowing that with those two things that God's intimately acquainted with us and with us everywhere we could possibly go. Wow. That is such good news, and that is the great hope. And with that, I might as well just stop right there. <laughs> AJ, thank you so much for coming on and sharing these things. Thanks, Ryan. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah. And, uh, where, you know, uh, reasons.org, as I have here on the screen, is a good place for them to go. Are there other places where people can go to get more information? Because I know you at Reasons to Believe, it's not just viruses. It's not just this sort of thing, but it's more of a science and faith integration. So uh, any more resources that you can share for people? You know, it's, it's all of the ways that science can, can point to uh, and confirm the view of a biblical God rather than being in conflict with that. That's what we're about at Reasons to Believe. If, if people want to know what I'm saying about COVID, they can follow me on Twitter and or Facebook. I post to both of those daily and sometimes more than once a day in the current situation. But we've got great resources. All of our scholars blog and those blogs can be accessed easily at reasons.org. Uh, so, yep. Perfect. Thank you so much. And for those listening and watching, thank you so much for listening and watching. I hope that this is encouragement to you as we learn more about viruses, God's creation, how we can better love one another around us. Uh, I just want to let you guys know again that uh, this is Tuesday. On Thursday, there's going to be the next live stream with John Noyes from Stand to Reason on 
suicide. And so that's going to be an important issue as we learn how to help those people who are around us uh, who are struggling with these issues and come around and love them well. So again, as always, uh, you can follow on social media and get updates there as well. Subscribe for all the future podcasts and or videos and videos that are coming out. So with that, I'm going to sign off. Thank you guys for joining us, me this week. And I'll see you guys again on Thursday. Won't hesitate to follow